go. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my name is Warren and I'm a member of the church family here at Grace Church Dulwich. Now, whether you're in the room on Zoom or joining us uh, via YouTube, uh, we're delighted that you're here with us this evening. I'm hoping this doesn't become our new normal and not just because we're all missing out on nice food. Um, to give you a sense of what's to come this evening, in a few moments, I'm going to hand over to Roger Carswell, our guest interviewer and speaker for the week. And he's going to introduce Yvonne, who's our guest interviewee. They'll chat for half an hour or so, exploring Yvonne's life and the difference Jesus has made. After that, Roger's going to help us a little bit more by thinking about the Bible and speaking from it. I'll then pop back on your screen for a few moments to close things off. Now, we're keen to keep our time together to an hour and be done at nine sharp. So if tonight raises questions for you or ideas or concerns, we'd love to hear. We'll share an email address in the chat and on screen at the end, do get in touch. And we can pass questions on to the most helpful place. If that's Roger, Yvonne or someone at Grace Church Dulwich. Roger, it's over to you. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Well, it's really good to be with you. Nice to see some familiar faces again and some I don't yet know, but um, I'm really sorry. I can't um, I can't be with you in the flesh. I, I had such a super time two years ago in Dulwich and I was looking forward to it. But there we are. Uh, so I'm speaking to you from North Yorkshire, rural North Yorkshire. I heard a lovely story this week. Um, we get a lot of hikers and walkers. And uh, one of them went up to a local farmer and said, um, said, excuse me, sorry to trouble you. He said, look, if I go down that field to the bottom and then turn left, do you think I could get to the railway station in time for the 9.15? <laughs> the farmer said, aye, lad. And if bull's in field, you'll get there for the 3.45. Anyway, that's the sort of area that I live in. And what we say around here, believe it or not, is we're to keep one cow's length distance between each other that's what we call social distancing never mind this six feet or two meters anyway it's great to be with you and uh, it, it's uh, the, the format really is I'm going to interview Yvonne I know Yvonne and um, I know you're in for an absolute treat it's a, it's an amazing story and it's one of those I'd love to say if there's somebody here who is a total disbeliever you explain what happened to Yvonne if there is no God. Just very quickly, um, if I mention, you can probably see behind, I have this banner. Um, I have a philosophy, those who don't use propaganda, well, such a person is a proper goose. So I've got some propaganda there, advertising this, this book distribution place. It's also hiding all the junk that there is behind. But from 10 of those, there are some good bargains. Now, there is one called City Lives by Marcus Nodder. And normally I've got a few of them there, but I must have got rid of them all at the moment. So let me just mention it. City Lives, you can get it from 10ofthose.com, and it's got Yvonne's story in it, and it's a good read. Two others, if I may. You might be interested in this. It's by Paul Williams, who's the vicar of Christchurch Fullwood in Sheffield, written this very helpful explanation about what is the Easter message and its relevance for us. Easter, the greatest news. You can get that from 10 of those. And if I'm allowed to mention something I've written fairly recently, um, and um, during the lockdown anyway, uh, where is God in a messed up world? And it's really answering the question, why does God allow suffering? Why a pandemic, etc. Anyway, go on 10 of those and you might just um, uh, be able to get some other bargains as well. But Yvonne, I think you're there and uh, it's really good to see you again. Um, where, where are you speaking from at the moment, Yvonne? Um, actually, I've moved back in with my parents temporarily because I sold my house at the end of last year and I haven't found anywhere to live. So I'm 
I suppose technically I'm a homeless person, but I oh, have dear. got somewhere to go. So where are you homeless? Whereabouts? in North London in a place called Southgate which is at the end of the Piccadilly line for those of you who know it no, well I'm sure they do down in Dulwich it's, uh, <laughs> yes indeed I haven't got a clue even what colour the Pic Piccadilly line is but anyway um, Yvonne where, where, where was home for you where did you grow up because it's not um, a Yorkshire accent I can tell no that. it's not no I'm a, I'm a true born and bred Londoner I was actually born in Holloway and I always have to say oh just a moment yeah, it wasn't in the prison my mum's always really um, avid to say mention that because it's obviously I think Holloway has a, a renown for having the women's yes. prison um, so I was born in Holloway and spent all my early years in in North London Holloway, Crouch End, Muswell Hill which are all fantastically salubrious areas now but they weren't actually when I lived in them we tended to move further and further out until um, we ended up here in Southgate. Okay and um, schooling I think you went to a Roman Catholic school didn't you? Yes, I did. I went to St Gilda's Convent and then I went to St Angela's Providence Convent School for young ladies. But yeah, there was a little little bit of that description that didn't really apply to me at the time, but that was where I ended up. Wait, so um, were you from a Roman Catholic family? Yeah, a big, strong Irish Roman Catholic family. Uh, yeah. And what was the convent like? Because we do hear horror stories these days. I got a very good education um, and primary school was wonderful actually. I really enjoyed primary school. I didn't transition too well to secondary. Um, I had a great capacity to learn and retain information so I did very well e exams um, but I also was a very low level disruptor at school so I spent quite a lot of time outside St Mary Agnes office with the big ticking clock that you had to sit underneath and I don't think she put me there because she wanted my company it was just to keep me um, away from being a disruptor there, there, there began the problems hey, well indeed why, why a disruptor why was it was it just the love of being mischievous or I don't know were things going on in your life that that led to this sort of behavior sure really I, I don't really know what it was I just I enjoyed making people laugh and it was that you know the class clown I wasn't a I wasn't um I wasn't disliked by the teaching staff I don't think but you didn't really want me in your class I was just I had a very low boredom threshold I think that was a massive part of it I'd probably have been diagnosed with something these days and <laughs> put on some amazing regime of medical intervention but they didn't have that when I was young you were just you just spent time sitting under the ticking clock, incredibly bored. Well, I have to say your school experience and mine sound very, very similar. <laughs> Except I didn't go to a convent. But uh, anyway, we were, we're not talking about me. You did incredibly well in the whole financial world, the business world. So how did you leap from being a disruptive pupil to a successful woman? Um, well, I, I managed to pass exams because I did. I, I so wish I had it now. I had a, a everything was exam based in those days. There was no coursework marking, so I could cram and cram and cram for exams. And if I had to sit the same exam a month later, I would have I had a fail because I, I didn't retain it for a huge amount of time, but I could retain masses of information um, over a short period of time. So I, I did well at exams. Um, I didn't go on to further education or higher education, which I know was such a disappointment to my parents because they were passionate about education. I had every support from my home life to, 
go on to university to go on and do really well I didn't want I just wanted to get out I just wanted to get out there I don't know where out there was but (laughs) if I was over here I wanted to be over there and when I was over there I wanted to be over there somewhere Um, you know that restless restless spirit so yeah so I left school and and entered the world of work in the late, in the, <clears throat> pardon me, in the late 70s. And at that point, it was actually quite easy, A, to secure a job and, and B, to, um, to do well without having a degree, basically. You didn't need. Um, but you really did climb the tree. Tell us some of the jobs you had. Well, I got into um, initially kind of secretarial work, and then I got into personal assistant work, and then I got into lovingly called private office manager work. So... Um, you know, I, I kind of managed offices of senior people um, and I'm trying to think who I'd be the equivalent of, probably somebody really unpleasant, but um, yeah, so I managed um, the private office manager for the uh, chief executive and the chairman of the lottery. Um, I um, worked, I mean, mainly at director and boardroom, well, always at director and boardroom level once I'd kind of earned my spurs. Um, so yeah, it was, it was ser- fascinating. Yeah. Financial Services Authority, boss, you yes. PAs, yes. amazing. Yeah, did that was. To, did you have to flirt to get those positions? Well, do you know what? The workplace changed massively over the period that I was at work, and, and work culture um, changed beyond recognition, really. Um, and you know, women in the workplace have a have a um, a much more dignified existence. I my experiences has mm. been um but you know but i embraced whatever was going on in the 70s and 80s <clears throat> you know my um my moral code was was pretty flexible shall we say mm. so let's uh, go yeah. back a little bit when you because when you were 15 or so this sort of not just a rebellious streak but sort of enjoying everything that the world had to offer sort of grabbed you didn't it yeah absolutely and i came from a very stable home um, I was loved. I was, um, you know, if I could lay any charge at my parents' door, I was probably slightly spoiled um, and indulged, maybe. Um, but when I reached the age of 15, I just, I was always very rebellious at authority. And I, you know, I can see now where that does come from. But at the time, I just thought it meant I want my freedom. Um, and I um started i i discovered alcohol basically was at the age of 15 i went to a party and i drank alcohol and it was just you know like and it wasn't as if i drank it having been in a depressed dark mood but i drank it and the world just turned technicolor it was like it was amazing and most amazing um encounter i'd had and and it just gave me that additional freedom i felt it it wasn't i wasn't a shrinking violet i wasn't a, a kind of wallflower type of person i had a vivacious personality anyway so i didn't need it for the dutch courage that people often assume but it just enhanced um my sense of perception um, and really, I look back now, and what does it do? You know, I've, I used to say I'm Teflon. When I drank, I felt invincible, um, mm. untouchable. Um, yeah. Where, where does a 15-year-old get the money for, for alcohol? Oh, gosh. Well, it wasn't very glamorous drinking in those early days. It would be 
um, I mean, bottles of cider on a bus at a weekend, going to to some place where you had to try and look at over eighteen to go and listen to, <laughs> to right. music. I was I really like music, live music. So we used to go to all these horrible, grotty old pubs and and try and listen to live bands. But you couldn't afford as a teenager to buy a drink mm. even, even then in pubs. So you'd buy get someone to buy it in the off license, drink it on the bus. <laughs> and, and that was it. It wasn't very glamorous, really, but it and was had, in my head. <laughs> and had you shaken off any thoughts of God that you might have got from school or home? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd had a you know a, a, a religious upbringing. I'd I'd made. I'd obviously been baptized as a baby, which is is you know Roman Catholic practice. I'd mm. um, made my first confession, my first Holy Communion, and my confirmation. Um, and the real point, that I, the one that I do remember is, as a really young child, I remember being told st Bible stories, being um, told about God and about Jesus and just believing it because the, the adults around me and the teachers told me. So I had no disbelief in what I was being taught. Um, and when it came to make my first confession, we were coached in what we had to say before we got into the confessional box and we were told we had to have three sins and I didn't know what they really were. And I'd le we'd learned the Ten Commandments off rote, and I knew I hadn't stolen an ox, and I knew I... So much of the language I didn't understand. I didn't know what covet was, and I didn't even know what adultery was, and all these words. So I just... But I knew it was a sin to lie. So I told three lies in the confession box um, as my sin. I just made them up. I made three sins up, three things I'd never done, um, trivial things and just to have those three things to tell the priest and I remember the fear that gripped me as I was exiting the confession box I honestly thought because I'd been told if you get it wrong if you you know do this sin thing you're going to be struck and I remember walking up to the rail to say my penances thinking that's me I'm toast and guess what nothing happened nothing mm. happened and I got up there as a six-year-old child and I knelt down I remember thinking I don't think you're really there I huh. don't think you're really there and that was where the the, the kind of beginning of my ardent atheism mm. Yvonne is it fair to say you became an alcoholic oh yes yeah I'm not I, I won't argue with you Roger on that one no, it's okay. absolutely fair <laughs> <laughs> and and what did in practice what did that mean were you you know were you hiding alcohol in your in your desk drawer were you looking for a free moment to be able to drink something and swig something yeah i i i was a very um active alcoholic but also i managed to you don't get away with it but i managed to function at a very high level um for a long 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 time um on the belief that if you drink vodka nobody can smell it you know and that's so not true um so my best friend was half a bottle of Smirnoff um, when I wasn't drinking in social settings and that was in I always had vodka in my desk drawer in my handbag um on on my person um and carried on functioning very well I did very well at work I um yeah I was someone described it to me once I was I was falling up the stairs you know my, my tra trajectory at that time was upward I was up, upwardly mobile fueled by Smirnoff 
Amazing. And did, Yvonne, did nobody notice? Was Were people aware? Was your boss aware? Were your family or parents aware in any way? Did anybody try and help you? In, not in the early days, they didn't, because I tended to mix with people who drank like I did. So drinkers do not challenge fellow drinkers. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things that was part of it was that I, uh, in terms of social um, interactions, I did become, I was a liability. You really wouldn't want me as a friend or a girlfriend. So I did have this capacity to, I had a Phoenix-like capacity to resurrect myself from the ashes of a broken romance, um, another failed friendship. I had a real easy capacity. I made friends easily, but because I was unreliable and unpredictable, overcommitted my time. I'd arranged to meet four different people in four different places all at the same time. And then I'd get drunk and I wouldn't even turn up for one of them. Oh, and, and my life was, I was chaotic. And yet I wasn't chaotic in my work life. And I, I began that, that kind of gap of the double life had got mm. wider and wider and wider. Mm. Now, Yvonne, the, one of the problems, there are many problems with alcoholism, but it can lead to other addic addictions. Was that true yeah. for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I started to use cocaine. I mean, that came quite soon, really. Um, by the end of my teens, my early 20s, I went, uh, I actually went and lived in South America for a while, which isn't an excuse for using cocaine. But if you choose to use cocaine, it's a fabulous place to go. Oh, wow. um, and, and that kind of generated an additional um, problem for me, but I didn't view that. All, all this time, if I would have said to myself, if I want to stop drinking, if I want to stop partying, taking cocaine, I'll just get up one day and decide not to do it. Um, I didn't know that was not to be the case. But yeah, so cocaine was amazing because it gave me the capacity to sort of stay awake for 22 hours out of 24 and inflict myself on the poor world even more. Hmm. And yet in all of this, the, the sort of chaos of this sort of life, with the success you did meet a man didn't you and uh this yeah, this was going to be uh, somebody who would stick with you yeah well I met lots of men I was quite good at meeting men <laughs> I was quite good at getting engaged as well I was a fiance I don't know how many times that, that, you know, <laughs> did you manage to keep the rings <laughs> no only the only the cheap ones I kept there was a couple I think that were probably from Argos and I kept them but there was one really expensive one and he took he, he asked for that back and I did was he from Yorkshire <laughs> no he was you know, he's from Brighton <laughs> it was actually a really nice man. And I look back and I think they all had such a lucky escape, these poor chaps, but um, they didn't really know that at the time. But then I did, I met a lovely, lovely man, a gentleman, a real kind, generous, honest, decent, not the sort of, of man that I wouldn't, you know, by that stage that I was really attracted to. I much preferred um, the kind of, you know, the bad boys. Wild uh, men. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you met him. Uh, was he aware of your addictions? He, well, it's interesting. He knew he knew that I drank. We we met in a bar. Surprise, surprise. Um, he he was very clean living. He liked to drink. He was he played a, a bit of rugby and he played you know sport. He was very sporty, but he was a businessman. He wasn't a sportsman, hmm. but um, he'd always kept fit and healthy. And he'd never, I mean, he'd never actually even smoked a cigarette. He'd never put one to his lips. So. He was, he was completely ignorant of anything to do with drugs at all. But he knew that I liked to drink. And falling in love is a very powerful um, kind of 
motivator and because you know he liked to drink but I just kind of my drinking calmed down um somewhat because I'd fallen in love you know it's in top it's falling in love is intoxicating I was mm. intoxicatedly in love mm. um with this amazing man and I was just smitten and um you know and the, it was it was the, the love was reciprocated and um, you know, unfortunately for me, because of my grandiosity at the time, he was a businessman, he was successful, um, and he, you know, I was swept off to wonderful places and wonderful holidays and wonderful gifts and, you know, very, very romantic and, and yeah, and I remember thinking, I was 30 by now, you know, I'd done all my, my, as I called it, my wild child years and I just fell in love with this man and, and he asked me to marry him. And your answer was rather. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, let's. <laughs> and you know, it was it was wonderful. I was just, yeah. I thought this is, you know, kind of this is it now. I've I've done I've done it all now, and I can settle down. Was there an expectation that maybe some of the issues that you were facing would would cease now? You got married, it would all. I don't know. Alcoholism would fade, etc. Was that your? Yeah, I just thought, you know, I didn't think to I'm going to stop drinking, but I just thought that, and I didn't, wouldn't have, certainly wouldn't have conceived of myself as an alcoholic at that point, or which is right. is quite insane, really. I think the consequences had never been severe enough. You know, the, the blessing mm. of a pretty strong constitution and just a massive physical tolerance for alcohol. Um, had kind mm. of kept me kept me away from a lot of the consequences that I could have had. And I met Paul um, and the drugs thing became very secret. He never, ever, ever knew about that until much, much later on. Mm. But he didn't know any of that that was going on. He didn't know what the signs were because it was completely out of his realm of experience. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, we got married and, um, and my drinking didn't stop but it became more manageable um, mm. for a period. And, and you had children, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we now, did, yeah. You, you can have children because you want children. Sometimes you can have children in the hope that maybe that will iron over some of the issues that you're facing. Which was it for you? Yeah, well, actually, both and, because um, our first son was born, and that was the point. I'd worked all the way Um, we decided we moved. We were living in Bermondsey at the time, which was a great place to live with a with our it was only one week old and we moved to the suburbs and at the same time we made the and my drinking just took off like a I can't it was it was absolutely rocket like because I started to drink and I'd I'd been a a secret drinker at periods mm. I'd, I'd always top up a good bit if I was going out for the night I'd have a, a good few drinks just to just to kind of yeah get the feeling before I went out but this was me drinking during the day drinking mm. earlier and earlier and earlier during the day my husband coming home from from work and saying to me Yvonne you're drunk at mm. half past five or six o'clock and of course I deny it and mm. mouthful of mouthful of fish, fisherman's friend and gold spot and I thought I was <laughs> going to get away with it but obviously I didn't mm. um yeah 
So, and, and then you had another child, another. Well, I had another baby, and I remember thinking I must be doing what I'm doing because I've just got too much time on my hands, and was convinced that that's probably the reason why. And if I have another baby, I'll be really busy. So mm. I had ended up with two babies under two. There was twenty mm. months between them, mm. and my drinking continued to get worse and worse and worse as much as it could. And eventually, this spiraled down to what really could have been total disaster. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what happened if you can. Mm. Well, I mean, my husband tried to do everything in his power. He took away all my access to money. He took away my car keys. He took away my credit cards. Um, He tried to, he didn't lock me in the house, but he would have, you know, my poor mum who lives, lived here in this house in North London would have to drive all the way down to Kent every day really to babysit me to stop me getting out and getting drink because I was very resourceful um and um yeah the world became very dark you know this kind Mm. of excitable um vivacious drinking partying um you know 24 hour a day person had had gone and I just was drinking, I don't know, just drinking miserably on my own, secretly, but obviously not mm. secretly. Everybody was the world's worst kept secret. Um, and yeah, with two very small children in my care, which was not good. And your husband, Paul, incredibly patient by the sound of it. Oh, immensely, immensely patient. You know, he tried, mm. he, he tried everything. You know, he sent me for um, medical intervention. I had talk, every talking therapy that was available at the time. Um, I had like reward therapy. You know, if you just stop drinking, he would buy me gifts. And um, yeah, it, it, you know, he was at his wit's end. He threw everything, every resource he knew and mm. had um, at, at the problem with drinking. I mean, I, I'm amazed. I often say to people, and I really, really mean this um, genuinely, if the if the roles had been reversed, I would have opened the door mm. and put him out. Mm. I really would. I don't know where his patience came from. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Now, time's going, but uh, eventually, Yvonne, you did something dreadful, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I made a, a really serious attempt on my life. It wasn't a cry for help. I I, um, I took a, 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 an overdose. I just couldn't bear the pain of being alive anymore. I didn't actually want to die, but I just couldn't bear my existence it was awful I'd I'd become a person I didn't want to be and I couldn't find a way not to be that person anymore Hmm. and and Paul then paid for you to go into a private rehabilitation center yeah what was your reaction to that well actually because I'd kind of I'd had a I'd had what they I called in my economy detox, which was a stomach pump at the local A&E. It's not funny, but, um, mm. you know, it wasn't very glamorous. No. Um, and then Paul, in desperation, found a very nice private treatment centre, which is really just a, a posh psychiatric hospital, <laughs> to call mm. it what it is, mm. um, and, and checked me in there. And I remember thinking, oh, it'll be nice and I'll be looked after and they might have a swimming pool and a sauna <laughs> and... I mean, I don't think my motives for going there were entirely no. <laughs> genuine, but um, off off I went to the treatment centre. Um, for how long? How how long did you go for? It was a month. Um, right. They agreed that I needed a minimum of a month. My family needed a month. They needed a lot a lot longer to recover from me. I think. Now this is where everything is going to change because you go to this rehabilitation centre and you just talk us through. I think this is 
altogether wonderful. But you just talk through what happened. We've seen this gradual slide down over 30 odd years. But then go on. Yeah, well, so I was in the rehabilitation centre. It was it was East um, August Bank Holiday, 1995. So a long time ago now. Um, and I had obviously had a detox, uh, a stomach pump. So I had no alcohol in my system, no drugs in my system. And after about three days, I hadn't had that experience of, of being sober and clean for so many years for three or four days it was just a whole new experience mm. um, and I felt physically felt so much better um, and prior one of the things that my husband had tried was he'd sent me to Alcoholics Anonymous um, and he'd also had our neighbour come in and talk to me and he was a retired minister I mean mm. that was really bad you know he used to come in and talk to me and bring me vegetables from his allotment and I used to just be looking at my watch thinking I just want you to go away and stop talking to me about God you know you're really bothering me <laughs> he was a lovely man mm. um and I was walking around the the grounds of this beautiful beautiful um treatment center where I was and that was I was allowed to um and I did feel you know I I just was starting to think about my life a little bit, but not not very, you know, as you might, may have guessed, there wasn't much weight and depth to me. I was pretty, pretty shallow <laughs> and superficial. And I, I went back to my room and I thought, oh, I'll read something. I actually thought I'll read something. Like if I open the drawer, there's bound to be sort of a glossy women's magazine in there. And I was sort of cosmopolitan. And then and straight away, you see, very manipulative. If I find some, a nice outfit in there, and when I come home, Paul will buy me some new clothes. <laughs> I was like, you know, really full of um, full of very honourable ideas, not. Um, and I opened the drawer and there was a Bible in there. Um, and I took the Bible out because it was all that was there. And I'd seen a Bible, I'd handled a Bible, I, I knew a little bit about the Bible, as in there was an old bit and a new bit, and there was <laughs> Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I remembered. So, you know, I knew some stories of, of the flood and the deliverance from Egypt and so on, but I didn't know my the Bible at all, and I just sort of started to fan through the pages. Um, opened the Bible and looked just flicking pages and finding pages and I came upon a, a story that I just read the opening lines to and it was in Luke chapter 7 and it said that Jesus and I, you know as I read the name Jesus I just I thought Jesus this man is having a food at somebody's house and a woman in the city where he is who was a sinner and as I read the words, I just thought it was, it was, I just thought that's, that's what is wrong with me because I couldn't, there was nothing else wrong with me. And I don't mean there was nothing else. I'm, mm. I, I read those. I'd had every opportunity that the world has to offer to find out what is the problem with Yvonne, what is wrong with Yvonne. I'd had every medical and psychological um tool thrown at me not thrown at me you know offered to mm -hmm. me and no one could get to the bottom of why I was doing what I was doing and I just read um read those words that, that this woman was a sinner and I just started to read the story and as I was reading the story I was just overwhelmed and I mean genuinely overwhelmed 
with a sense of my own sin. And I don't I really don't mean just that I got drunk a lot and that I had a, a poor moral code before I'd married. I just saw that this man, Jesus, that I was reading about, I just, I knew Jesus was God. And I knew that my life had not glorified him. I wouldn't have used those words then, but yeah. I knew I had not been living my life as my creator had made me to live it. And I knew that I read about Jesus and I knew Jesus was God. And I just knew God had made me. I was a, a, a being created by God. I wasn't just some random self-sufficient, self-reliant, I'll do it my way. Well, I'd done all those things and, and that's where it had got me. So you read there was a sinful woman. Yeah. It struck you. Yeah. And and how did that impact you? Okay, these thoughts are going through your mind, but what happened then? Well, uh, immediately as I was reading it, I couldn't even get to the end of the story. I actually, I actually got down on my knees by the side of the bed and I put my head down and I just wept. I sobbed not for myself, not even for my family, but just for what I'd done with the amazing gift of life God had given me. I knew God, life is a God-given gift. And I could, it was like a, this flashback of everything I'd done with that gift. Um, and I was reading through the story. And of course, it's also a wonderful story of forgiveness mm. um, of this woman. And it's, mm. you know, there's so so much in in that that story that the, you know everybody knew what she was like. Everybody were like, oh, you know, if if you knew what she's really like, you wouldn't want anything mm -hmm. to do with her. You wouldn't even let her near you. Um, and you know, I knew that Jesus knew everything about me, absolutely everything. There was nothing he knew more about me than I knew myself. But that he also loved me and forgave me. Um, so it was kind of it, tears of, of distress and tears of joy um, and just a, a, a great, I suppose, like an awakening to the existence of God and his son, Jesus. So you asked him to forgive you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did that change you? Absolutely. Yeah. Ch changed. I mean, so much. I'm always I'm always a work in progress, but um, completely, so you know, reorientate. So the alcohol is absolutely left. The desire for it went. Yeah, absolutely. Never and the drugs went, never returned. But, but absolutely, by the grace of God Almighty. So one moment you, you're just living as you were. Okay, you're in this rehabilitation centre. You open up the Bible, Luke seven. There was a sinful woman. A few minutes later, you're praying. You're crying yeah. out to God, and suddenly all those years of addiction and brokenness gone. Gone. Yeah, yeah. What and did I was, say I was a chronic alcoholic, by the way. I had an enlarged liver, and I was a very unattractive shade of yellow. So, um, you know, I was in. I wasn't. I was an early stage chronic, but I was mm -hmm. a chronic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did they say in the rehabilitation centre? Well, the follow because this happened sort of early in the evening, and I just I remember I spent the the evening in the room. And I was just, I mean, I was praying, I was just talking to God. I was just talking yeah. and talking and reading this Bible. I didn't, I mean, I, I just didn't know where to read. I was just reading and reading and reading um, things. And then I was reading little bits and remembering it. And I was just full of just joy. And, um, and then I, I do remember, and it sounds really almost childish, but I was afraid to go to sleep because I thought, what if I go to sleep and I wake up tomorrow morning and it, whatever 
and and there's nothing there and it's just been and, and of course I went to sleep I slept an amazing night's sleep and I woke up in the morning and God was where he's always been um, and has never been anywhere else and the same has gone on through my life the desire for alcohol um, was completely removed I can I you know I carried on I, I, I knew I, I knew I could walk away that day a free woman from alcohol but I also learned it's interesting isn't it that through what I'd read and through what I'd learned of God, that that, that that terrible, defiant rebellion against authority, which had just always been a part of my sin nature. I didn't know that. I thought it meant I just want to, I don't want to conform and I don't want to be like you or you or you. I just want to be me. But actually, you know, it was that defiant sin nature that I had. And I just thought, no, just not keep your head down, but just, you know, just do what your lovely husband has paid for you to be here and do. Go through the process. Learn, because you don't know it all. You know, all these things that were new to me, because I was like, yeah, I know, I know everything. I was unteachable. That, that The annoying person, and we all know one, who every time you go to say something, they're like, yeah, I know, I know. And that, <laughs> that was me. I was that annoying person. Yeah, I know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Now, the time has gone, but um, you went back home. How did Paul react um in, well in honestly initially um a little bit tentatively because i knew i'd been changed from the inside out and mm. i i i felt that people maybe should be able to see that but there'd been so many false dawns and false hopes before mm. of you know she's okay and then she wasn't then she was mm. then she wasn't and i think everybody just held their breath for quite some time to come and and mm. but you know eventually he did I, I i joined a local church because i just knew that i needed to and i i was baptized which was um just incredible um and and you know the sad part is paul's kind of reaction he wasn't resistant but he was just quite apathetic he was really glad i wasn't drinking he was really glad that I was reliable, dependable. I'd become, you know, I was able to be the good mother I'd want to be. I was a, a good wife and a homemaker mm. um, and all those things. But he just wasn't interested in the things of God. Mm. Um, yeah. It's and then hard. just tell us very quickly now what, what happened to him. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, like, you know, I mentioned he was very fit and healthy and um, he, he gave up the football and the rugby because as you get older the old knees don't do too well but he kept playing squash um, and he was a very very good standard squash player and you know he left home a couple of years after um, I came to know, know um, Jesus he left home one Thursday to play squash and he had a fatal heart attack on the squash court um, and, and he died and um, yeah you know it's mm, it's yeah, painfully, painfully sad. And the boys were still very young, but mm. um, yeah. Yvonne, that's 25 years plus ago. What does Jesus mean to you now? Oh my goodness. Well, I, that, that day in August Bank Holiday 1995, I fell in love with Jesus and I've never not loved him. My behaviour hasn't always, um, you know, I'm not, not the, the, the best um disciple or um but i i i love his i love him i love 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 the word you know the the bible is the breathed out word of god and if it can do that for me it can still do that for me every day you know it's a transformational book um it's not 
um, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. And to sit down, what's my favourite thing now is to sit down with other ladies and say, let's open the Bible and see who Jesus says he is and let's see what we can learn. And I just love, that's, that's my passion um, these days is, mm. is sharing Jesus with others. Yvonne, it's always a treat to talk with you. I love your story and I always find it deeply moving. We're going to have to finish there, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do what you've just suggested, sort of just open the Bible for a few minutes and share some some truths. But thank you very, very much for so interestingly, engagingly sharing with us. But uh, that's great. So don't forget that book, City Lives, uh, Yvonne's stories in there. Um, it's interesting in, in the Bible that there's a theme that runs through and it connects exactly with what we've heard from Yvonne. But it, it goes against what we normally think about the Bible and Christianity. It, well, let me read it. This is Jesus speaking. It's found in Mark's gospel, which um, uh, already Yvonne's referred to. Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, that's not normally what people think. They think, oh, Jesus is after good people. But no, he said he came to call sinners. Then in Matthew's gospel, he said the son of man, speaking about himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you get that teaching all the way through the Bible. So in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul's writing, he says in chapter five, God commended, demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or he's writing to his young friend Timothy and he says, this is a fatal saying worthy of everybody accepting that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds, of whom I'm the, the worst, the chief of them. And you, you stop and think about this and um, it's sort of underscored time and time again in the Bible. Think of some of Jesus's parables. I, I love the story and I don't know how many times I've told it to children of the shepherd who has 100 sheep. And one of them goes astray. So what happens? The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to find the one that's lost. When he finds that one, he comes, he puts it on his shoulder, he comes back rejoicing. And uh, similarly, a lady had 10 very precious coins. One of them got lost. So she searches diligently in every nook and cranny of her house until she finds that one. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story that Jesus told. I think the greatest story that's ever been told of, of um uh, a farmer who has two sons, the youngest one says to his father, father, give me everything that one day I'll have when you die. But I want to I want to have it now. He really was treating his father as if he was dead already. And he went to a far country and he just squandered his living, all this inheritance on on wild living. And um, with, well, the, the Bible story tells us he was going with prostitutes and you can imagine all the friends he had until the money ran out. And eventually he just gets a job feeding pigs, which for him was the lowest of the lowest. But until eventually he comes to the, the conclusion, do you know, this is crazy. My father's servants are better off than me. And he works out this sort of prayer. He's going to pray to his father as he returns home. Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to call your son, but would you take me on as a servant? But the father just runs and greets and welcomes him. The story of the prodigal son. Or I love the story, and I think I may have spoken about it when I was in uh, Dulwich last time, of the, um, the great feast. A man has a banquet, and he invites all his friends, but they all make excuses. They're pathetic ones. So then he sends out his servants to go and find anybody, poor, maimed, blind, etc. And yes, they come, but there's still space. So then he says, look, just go out into the highways, to the hedges, the cardboard cities of, um, of the area, and um, 
just compel people to come in. And he said those who were originally invited, okay, the feast isn't for them. But for these who most people would just reject, Jesus says this man had a welcome for them. And of course, he's speaking about himself. He came not to call the righteous. It's interesting. It was the religious people, wasn't it, who, who had Jesus crucified. And yet Jesus seemed to make a beeline for the underdogs. Uh, I don't know whether you use the phrase down south, but we talk about the riffraff, the rag ends of society. Uh, and, and Jesus went for them. Think of the people he healed, the blind and the maimed and lepers. They really were the, uh, the untouchables of that day and age. But Jesus went, he touched them, he healed them, the paralyzed. My father died, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now, but the last visit I ever uh, had with him, I took him across to Salford to go and see the, the Lowry exhibition of Lowry's art. And uh, uh, I, I think we had a great and a memorable day. But the picture that stands out most in my mind is one that he calls the crippled, and it's Salford Square. And he's, he's, he's painted lots of disabled people. But do you know the way he does it? He gives them all dignity in his own inimitable way, where what Lowry was portraying is really what Jesus was doing. He went for those that nobody else seemed to have any time for. In fact, he's dealing with individuals. Uh, Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus because he was a little man. And anyway, we won't go down that line. But he was a chief tax collector. He had bought from the Romans the privilege of, of taxing, but really exploiting his own people. He was hated, so hated, they wouldn't even allow him into the synagogue to worship. But Jesus, when he was going towards the cross, but he was going through Jericho, the crowd gathered around him and poor old Zacchaeus, because he was a little man, couldn't get past the crowd, you know, and he sort of sees bobbing up and trying to see over to see Jesus. So what did Zacchaeus do? He ran ahead and he climbed up a little sycamore tree. And there's Jesus thronged by this crowd interestingly it's almost as if jesus did not notice the crowd but he did see zacchaeus and he said zacchaeus come down and come home and come now and come as you are and they go and dine together and eventually zacchaeus comes to the the front of um, his house people are trying to peer in and see what's going on and he says to the crowd have i robbed you and when you read the story in Luke's gospel, you can almost hear the murmur, murmur, murmur. Yeah, Rob, me, all right, you know, this sort of thing. And then Zacchaeus says, look, I'll pay you back four times what I took from you. And half of all that I have, I'm going to give away. Do you know, salvation has come to my home, my heart, and it's transformed my pockets. It's a lovely, it's a lovely truth that's just running through the scripture. Jesus teaching once early in the morning in the temple, and the Pharisees dragged before him and, and threw before him a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, we know it takes two to tango. So where was the guy? And we don't know the answer to that. Some have suggested maybe he was one of them, but we don't know. But they took this woman and um, they, they throw her in front of Jesus before the crowd that uh, Jesus is speaking to. And then they say, do you know, the law says such a woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? Well, the law spoke about the man as well as the woman, but they're ignoring that. Jesus just stooped and he wrote something in the ground. I've often wondered, what did he write? Did he, did he I don't know, write out the Ten Commandments in the dust of the ground? There's a, a verse tucked away in the 
in the in, in the old testament that says those who depart from god's law will have their name written in the dust of the ground but we don't know uh, and the crowd gets impatient come on what do we do with such a woman and jesus stands up and he looks at these religious leaders full of their own self-righteousness and he says the one here without sin let him throw the first stone at her now of course there was somebody there without sin and that was jesus but he didn't want to throw a stone at her in fact he stooped and he continued to write and from the eldest to the youngest they all sort of dissipated and left jesus and the woman and jesus said to the woman does nobody condemn you and you can almost see you know the the stain of the mascara as the tears run down her cheeks and she says no one lord and jesus said neither do i condemn you now go and sin no more and then he spoke to the crowd and he said i am the light of the world whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life do you know when light shines it exposes the corruption and when that happens you can do one of two things you can walk away from jesus like those religious leaders did or stay with him and let him deal with it like that woman did she was a stone's throw away from death wasn't she and yet jesus had compassion on this sinful woman and even even when the lord jesus was on the cross two thieves one on either side they both began by blaspheming and cursing and then one of them turns and says lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and jesus said to him today you'll be with me in paradise isn't that an amazing truth he he he, he admitted he deserved capital punishment not many people would do that and, and yet he turned to jesus and jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise you know heaven is filled with bad people who have been forgiven and really in that i find tremendous hope because if it was for the good who is that not certainly not me i may not have done all that some others have done i may not have hit the headlines but i know i'm not the person i should be and yet jesus came into the world for people like me i'm looking at the the, the clock have i quickly got time to and, and, and have i got your attention i don't know but uh think of the disciples i think what a motley <laughs> lot they were jesus chooses these 12 people matthew the one who wrote one of the gospels he was a tax collector and when when jesus called him he, he arranges a party for all the sort of sleazy side of society and jesus mingling with these people uh, and then simon peter this outspoken disciple who, who, who to be honest he he opened his mouth before he'd engaged his brain very often yet he was a bold bold man but jesus shows him even though later on he was going to curse and deny jesus three times james and john they're nicknamed sons of thunder and um you know <laughs> oh, anybody against us let's deal with them and yet well one of them was beheaded because he followed jesus and john who's very close to the lord jesus christ you know probably outlived the others but devoted to him but but it wasn't like that to begin with andrew unassuming shy diffident though it's lovely every time we read of andrew um he's always bringing somebody to jesus very quiet but every time we read of him got somebody who he introduces to jesus and then philip an earnest inquirer i'm sure the other disciples at times must have turned to philip and said oh philip can't we just talk about inconsequential things for a while do we always have to talk about theology because he was always raising big big issues and then thomas we call him doubting thomas 
really was disbelieving Thomas, wasn't he? He said, I don't believe Jesus could rise from the dead unless I can put my fingers in the wounds in his hands and my fist in his side. There's no way I'll be convinced. And then Jesus appeared and he falls and he says, oh, my Lord and my God. And then there's Simon Zelotes. He's a political agitator. They're not very easy to, 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 to live with. You ask Piers Morgan. You'll know that's true. And yet he calls a, a Simon Zelotes and Thaddeus. Let me look at the clock again. Have we got time to tell you everything about Thaddeus? Well, I just have. We don't know anything. He's a total nondescript. And yet Jesus chooses, chooses this man and, and a, <laughs> a guy called James the Less. I'm sure, poor guy, when he was at school, he was sent to the educational psychologist who'd say, now, what's your name? And he'd say, well, my name's James the Less. Oh, no, 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 you mustn't think of yourself like that. You, know? <laughs> you must have self-acceptance that Jesus chose him and Bartholomew, a guileless Israelite, and Judas Iscariot. What a... And Jesus chose people like this, but then he's chosen anyone Edwards. And a Roger Carswell, maybe you can put your name there as well. Perhaps the greatest of all Christian witnesses is Saul of Tarsus, the man who we later on call Paul, the man who wrote so much of the New Testament, this devout follower of Jesus who took Christianity to the then known world. But it wasn't like that to begin with. Really avowedly Jewish in his beliefs and his religion and furious about Christianity. He is there at the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then he goes and gets permission to go to Damascus, 120 miles away, to round up Christians there and have them silenced, imprisoned, killed. It doesn't matter. And yet, dramatically, this man is met by the Lord Jesus Christ on his road to persecution and is wonderfully converted and changed. He calls himself less than the least of all the saints. Well, as an ex-school teacher, I want to say now, just a minute, you cannot be less than the least of. That's theologically not, oh, sorry, grammatically not correct. Theologically, it is correct. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Listen to these words written by the Apostle Paul to a, a difficult church in, in Corinth. This is what he said. Do not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what's coming next? He's writing to a church that would have read this out loud. And he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, set aside, you were justified, forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, in this church congregation were a group of men and women who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, swindlers, drunkards. But they'd been forgiven. Jesus came into the world not to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And that includes you and me. Sin is breaking of God's commandments. It's not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. It's not loving others as we love ourselves. We're all guilty. Sin is serious. It cuts us off from God. It would keep us out of heaven. It would condemn us to hell. But Jesus came for sinners, you and me. And the final greatest demonstration of that 
Go in your mind's eye outside the city of Jerusalem and see those three crosses and hanging on the central one is Jesus. The, the sight would be horrendous. But a darkness came over the face of the earth so that we couldn't see Jesus for three hours. And as he hung there, God did something amazing. He looked backwards in time to the beginning and forwards in time to the end, wherever, whenever that will be. And he took from all the world, from you and from me, from every continent and country and city and citizen, he took our sin and laid it all on Jesus and hanging hanging, suffering, bleeding, dying there, out of love for us, he carried our wrong that we might be forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin. The Bible says if we trust Jesus, God will separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He says, oh, your sins are scarlet. They shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson. They shall be as wool. He'll cast our sins behind his back, the Bible says, into the deepest ocean. He'll blot them out and, and so on and so forth. I want to ask you, if I may, do you know that you're forgiven? There was a sinful woman and there was a sinful man, but Christ came for both. And he came for you and me. And do you know he is only a prayer away? If you ask the Jesus who died for you and was buried and rose again to forgive you, this living Jesus, he'll take away the past and by his Holy Spirit, he'll come to live within you and make all things new. He promises to take you through life, yeah, through death and eventually to be with himself in heaven. Heaven is not a reward for doing good. Heaven is a gift which Jesus purchased. And he offers to all. And I would urge you tonight to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. Before I hand back to Warren, uh, I'm going to pray a prayer very similar to the one that I prayed when I was 15 and I, I trusted Jesus Christ. And I'd urge you to pray it with me tonight, if you would. So a final prayer. Echo, personalise these words, if you will. Dear God, you know everything there is to know about me. So I want to say I am sorry for my sin. And I want to turn from it. I do believe Jesus died for me and, and rose from the dead. Please forgive me. Come and live within me, please. Become my Lord and Saviour and help me to follow you. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. I'm going to hand back to Warren and he'll explain what you can do if you prayed that prayer with me tonight. But Warren... Roger, uh, thanks so much. Yvonne, thank you too. Uh, thank you both for being with us this evening, for sharing honestly, for giving us food for thought. And thanks so much for coming, if you've joined us here on Zoom or on YouTube as well. Now, as a church, we love to encourage and engage in discussion and conversations about Jesus. If you found anything this evening that's raised questions or concerns or just maybe piqued interest, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch via email to admin at gracechurchdulwich.org. I think it's in the chat. Uh, if you've got any questions for the church, for Yvonne or for Roger, send them in and we can put you in touch with them. It might be you want to think a bit more about some of the things we've heard about tonight. Uh, you could come again to the third event on Saturday evening in our series this week. On Saturday night at eight, we'll be joined by Roger again and Piyush Yani 
he's a uh, from a Hindi family. He came to the UK as a teenager, became a doctor, and then found himself exploring the Christian faith. You're welcome to come on Saturday evening, or you could join us on one of our Sunday morning church services at 9.45 or 11 a.m. on Zoom or YouTube, or in person at Rosendale School in West Dulwich. It might be you want to explore the claims of Jesus further. So I promise, last, last few things, two more things briefly. Um, if you'd like to read one of the biographies of Jesus with someone, that could be a friend you know who's a Christian, or we can put you in touch with someone at Grace Church Dulwich, do email in through the website for more information. And also next Wednesday the 17th, we're going to start a three-week Christianity Explore group looking at Jesus' life and claim on Zoom again at eight to nine. I know everyone loves Zoom right now. Again, email in admin at gracechurchdulwich.org for more information. So that's it from us. Um, the Zoom is going to come to an end shortly and the YouTube stream is going to come to an end. Just want to say a big thank you to Roger and Yvonne and thank you for your time. Good night. <laughs>